Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's VCCR Rounds. I'm your host, Sean Kane. Today I will be speaking with Dr. Elliot Cohen about ECMO and indications for ECMO. Dr. Cohen is the Medical Director of Advocate Condell's Adult ECMO Program. He's also the Co-Medical Director of Advocate Condell's Intensive Care Unit and Medical Director of the Medical Center's Pulmonary Rehabilitation Program. Dr. Cohen, before we get started, did you have any disclosures to share? Uh, No, I don't. Excellent. So uh, the intent of this podcast is to touch a little bit on ECMO, but more focus on indications for ECMO, who's an appropriate candidate for ECMO. So given you know the nature of the audience, I think it's probably important that we start with what is ECMO, what are some of the flavors of ECMO, for someone who doesn't know a lot about ECMO. Sure, Sean. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It is used as a means to support either uh, pulmonary or cardiac failure or both in critically ill patients. And we have two basic types. We have venovenous ECMO and venoarterial ECMO. The basic premise of ECMO is that venous blood needs to be drained out of the body and then returned either back to a vein so-called venovenous ECMO, or return through an artery, what we call venoarterial ECMO. Now, when you do that, can you give the listeners an idea of which blood vessels are most typically used for VA and VV ECMO? Sure. So for venovenous ECMO, which again is would be purely for respiratory failure alone, we can either use two cannulas. Typically, if you're going to use a two cannula approach, you would Uh, drain blood from the femoral vein, typically the right femoral vein, but could be the left femoral vein. And you would return oxygenated blood through the right internal jugular vein. Uh, We could also use a a single so-called dual lumen cannula, which draws blood and returns blood through two separate ports in one single cannula. That cannula is typically placed in the right internal jugular vein, and draws blood from either the superior vena cava alone or from both the superior vena cava and inferior vena cava, and then returns blood through a side port directed at the tricuspid valve to uh, enter into the pulmonary circulation. And then for those patients that need the cardiopulmonary support with VA ECMO, what is different about that setup? So for VA ECMO, we drain blood again through a vein, typically through the right femoral vein, uh, could be left femoral vein, because the venous cannula that we use makes its way up to the right atrium. It's a very long cannula, and it's what we call a multi-stage cannula. So it has multiple ports within it, and the end of it is typically placed into the right atrium. So it makes its way all the way up to the right atrium, but then has ports all along it through the inferior vena cava. Now, if it's peripheral, complete peripheral VA ECMO, then we return the blood through a uh, femoral artery. We can also have central VA ECMO where we return the blood either directly into the aorta with an open chest, or we can put it through the 
axillary artery, and that's usually done with uh, sewing a graft onto the axillary artery and then connecting the cannula onto that graft, and that would be considered central VA ECMO. So again, not to get too much into the nuts and bolts of it, but just so that the listeners have a better feel for it, for me, one logical question is, if you're pumping blood back into the femoral artery, how does that blood, that oxygenated blood, make its way to the brain then, if you're all the way down in the femoral artery at that point? Well, that's a great question. So if the heart is not working at all, then it's not that difficult to imagine how the blood gets up past the aortic arch and up to the brain, as long as there's enough flow. If the heart is working significantly, then you will have some competition between the forward flow of the heart and then the flow from the femoral artery competing against the forward flow from the heart. And that can lead to uh, what we call uh, north-south syndrome or harlequin syndrome, where the lower part of the body may be oxygenated, but the upper part of the body, including the brain and the coronary arteries, may not receive oxygenated blood. The way we determine that in a gross fashion, if somebody has peripheral VA ECMO, is we always place uh, an arterial line in the right arm or hand, and we measure the oxygen saturation uh, or PO2 from the right arm or hand, which tells us that if oxygenated blood is making it all the way to the right hand, then we can assume that oxygenated blood makes it across the arch and up to the brain and the coronary arteries. Awesome. Definitely a lot to think about and many complications given how um, involved the procedure is. I would imagine then that, you know, the size of the cannula must be pretty impressive given the amount of blood flow that you're going to need for that ECMO circuit then. Is that correct? That is correct. So uh, the uh, most important factor in uh, contribution to total ECMO flow is the amount of venous blood you can put into the system, the uh, analogous to the preload of the uh, of the heart. So the more preload we have into the system, just like the heart, the more flow then we can have on the other end. Now for VA ECMO, if you have a very tiny arterial cannula, then you will run into problems with afterload uh, against, you know, pushing against that small cannula. The sizes of the cannulas for, for VA ECMO typically, uh, for the venous cannula, we're typically using uh, anywhere from 19 French to 27 French cannula, which is quite large. And for the arterial, we're typically using anything from 17 French to 25 French. So clearly, as I said, lots to think about, lots of different ways that ECMO can be run. Certainly only certain centers are running ECMO given the nature of the complexity of it. Then is that correct? That is correct. Excellent. Okay. So I think that the listeners probably have a fairly good idea about what is ECMO, kind of how it works. And from my understanding is that ECMO has really become a hot topic in, let's say, the last, I don't know, five to 10 years. What was the the big reason why ECMO's, adult ECMO has really become such a hot new thing? Uh, well, after uh, 2008, 2009, with the H1N1 outbreak, uh, there were a lot of uh, young, otherwise healthy people that had uh, isolated severe lung failure and could not be oxygenated with conventional uh, ventilation. And uh, that led to 
uh, an interest in, in using ECMO in adults and sort of a resurgence in trying it in adults. The downfall of uh, ECMO in adults, at least for respiratory failure, occurred, uh, I believe, in the, in the early 80s. There was a study done by Warren Zapal, and basically that study showed that there was no difference in outcome uh, in people with uh, ARDS uh, with ECMO versus non-ECMO. However, uh, that study was done using VA ECMO only, and it was done at a time when the technology uh, was a lot different, and most of the patients had significant bleeding that were put on ECMO at that time. And the bleeding, I would assume, is that because of all the foreign objects that you're pushing the blood through, clotting is probably a huge concern with these patients. Right. So the bleeding mainly occurs because of the foreign material that the the blood comes into contact with. So the big improvements in, in, in the technology of ECMO have come from having more biocompatible materials. In the sense that you don't have to anticoagulate them to the same degree that maybe you did 20 to 30 years ago? Not only do you not have to anticoagulate them to the same degree, but you don't have the same degree of fibrinolysis or other uh, coagulopathies that will occur just from uh, blood cells coming into contact with non-endothelialized surfaces. Mm-hmm. So then sounds like adult ECMO really took off in 2008, 2009, Prior to that, were there any patient populations where ECMO was being used more commonly? In? Uh, pediatric and uh, neonatal, it had been quite common mm-hmm. and, and st- still is, is, is common to be used. So I would imagine then that adult ECMO somewhat borrowed from technology and experience from pediatric ECMO to some degree then. That is correct, yes. Which is actually kind of ironic if you think about it, because typically it's that we have great adult data that is extrapolated to pediatrics as opposed to the opposite way around. Right. So then through this process, gas has to be exchanged in terms of adding oxygen, getting rid of carbon dioxide. Could you just very briefly, almost in layman's terms, describe how this process occurs with the ECMO circuit? So we have an oxygenator, and that oxygenator is composed of fibers made of a substance called polymethylpentene. And gas is, is forced through the center of those fibers and blood flows around the outside of those fibers, and gas exchange occurs based on pressure differences between the blood phase and the uh, phase of what we call sweep gas flow, which is the oxygen flow. So the blood coming into the oxygenator has been devoid of oxygen because it's after it's passed through the patient, and the partial pressure of oxygen in those fibers is very high, and oxygen passes from the fiber into the blood and into the hemoglobin, and so you have saturated hemoglobin. You can only saturate hemoglobin so much, however, and so if you need to do oxygenation, the only way to increase oxygenation is to increase blood flow through the oxygenator, whereas Removal of carbon dioxide can be done by simply increasing the amount of fresh gas flow through the uh, oxygenator membrane. So in some respects, it, it isn't that dissimilar from like a dialysis, except you're working more with gases as opposed to solute and fluids. That's exactly right. Interesting. Okay. And you mentioned some of the complications. One is bleeding. Are there any other complications that are somewhat common with ECMO? 
Bleeding is probably the number one, as you said. The circuit components can fail themselves, uh, separate from clotting within the components. The uh, pump head could fail. The uh, motor could fail. Those are much more rare. The tubing could become ruptured. However, that's extremely rare. In the past, with old way of doing ECMO, when roller pumps were used instead of centrifugal pumps, which we use now, you could have rupture of the tubing because the roller pump would continue to pump no matter what the afterload on it was. And you could get what they called a raceway rupture. Uh, I've never seen that happen because I've never used roller pumps, but there's pictures I've seen of uh, blood filling the entire wall and ceiling uh, after uh, tubing rupture on a, ro- on a roller pump. Because that pressure builds up and then at some point something has to give. That's right. Wow. Whereas nowadays with centrifugal pumps, if the either the preload decreases or the afterload increases, the pump will essentially just stop pumping. So mm-hmm. it's dependent on preload and afterload. And uh, e- even though the patient may not get blood flow, it's much safer because you won't potentially have that devastating mm-hmm. complication. So then if there's a potential for mechanical failure of your hardware that you're using, I would hope then that you have some kind of a backup system at the ready for this life-saving procedure that a patient's receiving. That's exactly right. So uh, different uh, institutions uh, have different protocols for this, but uh, most people would have a whole separate uh, ECMO circuit and machine set up ready to go so that if there was a problem, the uh, new machine could be placed uh, into the circuit, which would mean you'd have to cut away some of the tubing and reattach it. You could also theoretically uh, just reinsert the component that had failed, let's say the oxygenator or the pump head, but the simplest way is just to replace the whole circuit. So then, as you mentioned, in 2008-2009, ECMO got very popular and probably has increased in popularity over the subsequent years. As you mentioned, in the 80s, we had some data suggesting no benefit. At this point, are we starting to accumulate data that does suggest some benefit using ECMO? Well, so we have to look at separately for respiratory failure and separately for, for cardiac failure. So For respiratory failure specifically, let's say ARDS, there was the seminal trial called the the CSER trial. Uh, That was done in England, and uh, that was a trial in 2009. It was a randomized prospective study of 180 patients with severe ARDS. And patients were randomized to either conventional management at the outside hospital or referral to one single experienced ECMO center within England. And they did show a significant survival benefit in patients who were transferred to the ECMO center. Uh, Problems with this study uh, were that not everyone that was transferred to the ECMO center actually ended up needing ECMO. Fairly significant number of these patients actually just improved with conventional management or, you know, potentially better conventional management. Uh, So really from this study, what we can say is that probably patients do better if they're transferred to an ECMO-capable center, but I don't think that this study necessarily proves that ECMO is better than conventional therapy for severe ARDS. 
There is an ongoing study right now called the EOLIA trial, and uh, that study aims to put everybody that is put into the ECMO arm on ECMO, and uh, that study also aims to uh, transfer all the patients on ECMO because there were some deaths of patients who were transferred without ECMO. And I believe that study is meant to uh, finish within the next few months. Wow, that's wonderful. So hopefully that'll kind of uh, fill in some of the gaps from the CSER trial. That's correct. I would assume then that the the conclusion of transferring to an ECMO-capable center really isn't that far different from some of the other disease states that we see where transfer to a facility with experience in certain disease states is important. So PCI comes to mind or a stroke center, things like that. So I don't know that it's that hard to agree with the conclusion that with these really sick patients that they should probably be sent to a center that has a lot of experience in ARDS, for example. That's correct. So we've even had patients that have been transferred to us for uh, ECMO and then have not ended up having to use ECMO because we were able to use either uh, recruitment maneuver or uh, prone positioning or inhaled nitric oxide and, and able to improve the patient's oxygenation so that we didn't have to use ECMO. So then you mentioned that uh, when we think about the data, we really have to separate between VV ECMO for something like ARDS and then VA ECMO for cardiopulmonary support. So do we have a CSER equivalent for VA ECMO? We don't. We, we have only retrospective data for VA ECMO. And we do have lots of data that, that is retrospective showing that, especially in cardiogenic shock, post-MI, and, and uh, myocarditis, that uh, ECMO has a significant uh, benefit, especially when you compare it to uh, something like uh, an intraortic balloon pump. There's actually quite good data, uh, and, and all seems to be in agreement that ECMO seems to be better than intraortic balloon pump, although we have very good data that intraortic balloon pump itself is of no utility in, in cardiogenic shock. Which I'm sure can start plenty of fights among the cardiology and intensive care community, given how strongly people feel about something like that. That is correct. But, but more and more cardiologists are actually starting to become interested in using ECMO for, for patients in cardiogenic shock from the cath lab. Great. So, you know, I think that the audience has a really good idea of what is ECMO, what are some of the nuts and bolts to think about. Really, many listeners aren't going to be initiating an ECMO program at their site, but they may be considering, should this patient be transferred to an ECMO-capable center for the reasons that we talked about from the CSER trial. So what are some of the big inclusion or exclusion criteria to think about when thinking about should this patient be transferred to an ECMO-capable center or not? So, so that's a great question, and I would say that anyone with severe ARDS who is considered to be appropriate for aggressive therapy uh, may be appropriate for ECMO. And the earlier one begins to think about the need for it, the, the better off it will be because the earlier ECMO is done, the, the better the outcome. We, we know that after seven days of, of being on a ventilator with high driving pressures and high oxygen, that the ability to survive even on ECMO is significantly decreased. I would also say that some of the other adjunct therapies uh, should be tried first. Uh, once the patient has a PF ratio of less than 100, uh, some people use less than 80, uh, then uh, an ECMO evaluation should really be seriously considered. 
and people have different sort of time frames, but uh, what we typically use is if they have a PF ratio of less than 80 for uh, greater than six hours, that's a patient that we would strongly consider putting on ECMO, again, as long as it's a patient that we otherwise would want to continue aggressive care on. And just for clarity, PF ratio, you're referring to the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio on mechanical ventilation. That's correct. And again, for clarity, when you're talking about patients appropriate for aggressive management, that would be excluding someone, let's say, who has stage four cancer with a couple months to live, probably not the best ECMO candidate then. That's exactly right. So even even I would say age is not an absolute cutoff, although again, you have to consider the uh, overall you know functional status of the patient. But obviously, if somebody has metastatic cancer, that's not a, a patient we would consider uh, putting on ECMO. So we've covered the candidates for VV ECMO. How does that compare? Obviously, the indication is different, but who are the good candidates for VA ECMO? Who who would be a good patient population to consider for that? So again, the the same type of thing that somebody who is appropriate for aggressive care. So somebody, as you said previously, that has metastatic stage 4 cancer is certainly not somebody we're going to put on ECMO. Somebody that already seems to have uh, significant brain injury from prolonged CPR is another patient that we're probably not going to put on ECMO. So the ideal candidate would be someone who has not been in shock for a very long period of time, who is unresponsive to inotropes and vasopressors, and who still remains in shock and needs circulatory support. And the, the, the earlier that's done, uh, the better, because the longer the patient's uh, in shock with poor oxygen delivery to uh, tissues and vital organs, the harder it will be to uh, recover from that. Uh, specifically, the uh, best outcomes are seen in uh, acute viral myocarditis, uh, and uh, very good outcomes can be seen in post-MI cardiogenic shock that has been uh, revascularized either percutaneously uh, or surgically. So for the listeners who are interested in learning more about ECMO, um, would you mind recommending, let's say, a, a good resource where they could read more about it or just understand some of the history of ECMO and the future of ECMO as well? So good resource would be the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization, ELSO, uh, website, or even on our own uh, website here at Advocate Condell, we have an ECMO website where we actually have some links to some articles which go over uh, current uh, use of ECMO and the history of ECMO. And how can the listeners access that Advocate Condell website? So it's www.advocatehealth.com forward slash Condell forward slash ECMO. Well, Dr. Cohen, I really appreciate your time to sit down and talk about ECMO. I know it's one of your passions. And for the listeners, thank you for joining us today. Uh, This does conclude this episode of the VCCR Rounds podcast. If you have a topic or specific questions you'd like us to address in future episodes, you can tweet us at SCCM and use the hashtag VCCR Rounds. That's V-C-C-R-O-U-N-D-S. For the VCCR Rounds podcast, I'm Sean Kane. Thank you. Sean Kane received his Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Butler University in 2010. In 2011, he completed a PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency. 
In 2012, he received board certification in pharmacotherapy and completed a PGY-2 critical care residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Currently, Dr. Kane is an assistant professor in the Department of Pharmacy Practice at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science in North Chicago, Illinois. With a clinical practice site at Advocate Condal Medical Center's Intensive Care Unit in Libertyville, Illinois. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.